What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the No Rain, No Rainbows podcast. So glad that you're joining us today. Thank you for your time. Now, if this is your first time listening to this podcast, to cut it short, it's all about life being hard, but it's worth the squeeze. We have to get through our storms to get to our sunshine and our rainbows. And this is a podcast about discussing some of the hard times we've been through and some tactics that we could maybe use to get through those hard times or even simply just tap tactics we could apply in our lives to live our best lives. So joining me today, I'm excited for this interview. Uh, help me welcoming our, our guest, Carl Sharperson, who is the author of Sharp Leadership, a book I've read maybe about a year and a half ago, um, Carl Sharperson Jr. Thank you for the correction. <laughs> Go ahead and introduce yourself and, and let us know where you're from and exactly what it is you do for our listeners. Okay, outstanding. Yeah, my name is Carl Sharperson Jr. I'm a leadership innovation strategist. I help people go from being mediocre to maximizing their potential. That's kind of what I do. Um, hailed from Washington, D.C., mm -hmm. was born there. Uh, at the age of 14, moved to Spotsylvania, Virginia. Uh, went to high school there. Uh, decided to go into the, the Naval Academy and uh, after the Naval Academy and played football there for four years. Then I entered the Marine Corps, became a pilot in the Marine Corps. Then I worked with several Fortune 500 companies, Procter & Gamble, Frito-Lay, Colgate-Palmolive. Came to South Carolina in 1999 as the vice president of manufacturing for Dunlap Slauzinger making golf balls. Mm -hmm. Worked for them for one year. My boss and I agreed to disagree. Then I started up my own business called Sharp Leadership, Overcome Adversity, to lead with authenticity, uh, which is uh, my book. But uh, Sharp Leadership is the business that I formed. Mm -hmm. And then about eight years ago, I started doing professional recruiting also. So yeah. now I do a combination of all of that. Wonderful, wonderful. And, and that's quite the resume. And I'm sure we'll be, uh, be able to unpack parts of that along the way. Now, when you talk about pulling of the potential out of people, that has to come from some personal experience, I would imagine. And with all the accomplishments, accomplishments you've had from the Naval Academy to the United States Marine Corps, even playing playing football through college. What are some of the big challenges that, as you sit here today, still stick with you that's still a little bit on the surface? Well, probably the uh, I, I say that my high school coach was the third most influential person in my life besides my parents. Mm -hmm. And uh, I went out for football for the first time in the ninth grade and never played tackle football before. And my coach, Coach Sparks, uh, gave a talk that I'll never forget, and uh, he said, you got your pads today, and uh, if you don't want to play, turn them in. But if you come tomorrow, I need you to stay until the end of the season hmm. because quitters never win and winners never quit. He said, if you quit my football team, you might uh, quit school. Yeah, Quit school, get married, quit your spouse. Mm -hmm. Have kids, quit your kids because once you quit the first time, then it's easier to quit the next time. So that sticks with me. Uh, and it's carried me throughout my life, the attitude of never quitting. Yeah. And I mean, and we could probably agree that quitting can become a habit quickly and sticking through projects and finishing the things you start, that could also become a habit, which could be very beneficial for people in their lives. Has there any been a time that you might've considered even after playing football, after the lessons that your coach has bestowed upon you, has there any been, ever been a time where quitting seemed like the only option for you? Well, there's a um, kind of a double-edged sword with the quitting piece. Um, and I'll give you an example where I stopped doing something, but I don't mm -hmm. call it quitting. So um, I was the vice president of manufacturing for Dunlap Slauzinger. And uh, that's what kind of brought me to South Carolina. So I agreed to what I thought I was agreeing to. 
And then after about six or seven months, it became clear that my boss and I agreed to disagree. Mm -hmm. So the the environment was very toxic. So um, I decided to leave that environment. All right. So I don't consider that quitting. Yeah. Uh, I consider that looking at the situation and saying, because I wasn't running from anything unless you want to say I was running from uh, toxicity and uh, people not treating people right. Yeah. Basically, what was going on was the values of the organization and my values were not aligned. So I left that situation. Yeah. And I kind of want to kind of press into that toxic environment and being able to where you say you and your you and your partner agreed to disagree. My boss. You and your boss. Um, I think a lot of people sometimes find themselves in a position where they feel stuck. They feel stuck at work. They might be frustrated with how things are going or they might think that their work environment is a toxic environment. However, they might not always have the tools or the resources available to them to walk away. They don't have the luxury to do so. If somebody's in this position currently where they feel stuck, what are some steps they can take to kind of take ownership of their lives and get to a position where they can walk away? That's a great question. Um, and different people have different thresholds. Mm-hmm. But one of the things I always do is I, I try to make decisions based on data. So I try not to do anything rash. So one of my things is if I'm going through something, I don't want to react to whatever's going on. I want to uh, I want to have a um, a game plan. You know? Yeah. And sometimes you practice that game plan before it happens. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you, so if you come up with values that you're going to accept and not going to accept and you run into it, you've already done the thought process of, of what's it going to take for you to leave. Yeah. Um, so some things you can do is I always look at the pros and the cons and you say, okay, I'm in this situation. What are the pros of it? What are the cons of it? Uh, and then you weigh that. And then you say, you know, what's the risk? Mm-hmm. If I do this thing, what's the worst that can happen? You assess the worst that can happen. Uh, you assess the best that can happen. And then you make a decision. Maybe you get some input from some people, some valued resources that, that you value. Because uh, the other thing that happens, too, is when you're in something, you can't see it. I don't care how smart you are. I don't care how good you are. If you're in it, you can't see it. Yeah. Somebody from the outside, my kids from the outside can look at stuff I'm going on and tell me stuff that I can't see because I'm in it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I use it the, uh, I kind of use the uh, example of the, of the frog. If you put a frog in some boiling water, the frog will jump out. Mm-hmm. If you put the frog in some lukewarm water and slowly turn up the temperature, you'll kill the frog. Yeah. So when you're in that situation, the heat's being turned up and you can't see it. So you can die on the vine. Yeah. It's kind of like you can't see the forest when you're among the trees. You have exactly. to have someone with an outside perspective really kind of let you know the environment in which you're in. Now, great, great steps there to kind of go from where you are. And, and hopefully I love the pros and cons and really kind of putting it on paper because I think I could relate to you on that where I try not to make any rash decisions. I like to be proactive, not reactive. Set a game plan, really kind of map it out and Unfortunately, the harsh truth that some of our listeners are going to have to accept is this might be a plan that takes a year to execute. It might be a year before you can get out of that environment. But the beauty is once you start the planning process, it's no longer your your permanent situation. There is a light at the end of the tunnel. Let's talk a little bit about uh, entering the Naval Academy. What are some of the challenges and some of the lessons that you were able to walk away with from that? Well, the first one was... Um I was, um, I played football. I was the most valuable player of the football team my senior year. And I played, uh, offense and defense and made all American teams. Uh, and my coach sent a recruiter 
to my high school. So I'm in class and myself and two other guys get called to the office. We don't know why we're getting called to the office. And then walks this guy, six foot three, 230 pounds, blue, blue coat, white shirt, blue tie, mm-hmm. white cover. And he says, I'm from the Naval Academy and I want to recruit you to play football. I didn't even know what the Naval Academy was and it was 90 miles up the road, primarily because there weren't a whole lot of people that looked like me that mm-hmm. were going to the Naval Academy. So the other two guys that were with me walked out. Mm-hmm. And I graduated from high school in 1971, so Vietnam was going on. So they said, I'm not going to Vietnam. So they walked out. I listened because my dad always told me, never turn down an opportunity that you haven't been offered. Hmm. Always listen. So I listened, went home and talked it over with him, decided to go. Now, the requirements to get into Naval Academy are pretty tough. Um, we're talking 1,500 plus maybe on the SAT. We're talking uh, 99% captains of some varsity sport three sport athletes, uh, honors, uh, merit students, Mm -hmm. um, and just a well-rounded person, 20% Eagle Scouts. I mean, that's the kind of competition. So when I tried to get in, I I couldn't get in because I wasn't competitive. My GPA was not competitive, and my um, SAT scores were not competitive. So they offered to send me to a preparatory school in Harlingen, Texas. First time I'd ever been on a plane, uh, and uh, I played football, and I learned to study for the first time. I didn't realize that when you study, you open up a book. You read. If you don't understand it, you read it again. If you don't understand it, you read it again. Because I had never, never done that. I had a third and fourth grade teacher that put the love of math in me. So I was good at math. Uh, and I was good at grammar. Didn't like to read. So when I came home in high school and in, in, uh, junior high, I'd do my problems and go play or either work. That yeah. was kind of what I did. So I wasn't prepared. So I decided to uh, uh, go to the prep school. Then I got into the Naval Academy. Now, I told you what the standard was and the kind of competition was there. So I mm-hmm. barely get in, right? <laughs> so uh, my first year, everybody takes engineering. My first year, I'm taking chemistry. After about two weeks, it seems like the teacher's talking French and I only understand English. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, I can remember, I cried myself to sleep at night and I said, Lord, what am I going to do? I mm-hmm. said, you know what? I'm not going to quit. So I went in and talked to the instructor and I said, I, don't, I need some help. So he gave me some problems and talked it over for about an hour. I understood a little bit more, but uh, not really. But I committed then. I said, you know what? I'm going to spend whatever time I need in chemistry. I spent more time in chemistry than all my other subjects put together. Mm-hmm. I made a B in chemistry first semester and a B in chemistry second semester. Mm-hmm. Okay? But, again, that was the mindset of quitters never win and winners never quit. Yeah. So uh, my goal was to graduate on time and not go to summer school. And I did that. <laughs> wonderful, wonderful. Well, it sounds like, listening to this story, it sounds like there were a lot of firsts along the way. When you, you first meet this person for the first time, you hear about the school for the first time, preparatory school, first time on a plane. What is it like going into uncharted territory? And you even alluded to the fact that not a lot of people there look like you. So not only are you in uncharted territory, there's not too many people that you might compare yourself or familiarize yourself with that can help you guide you along the way. How do you deal with the, the uncharted territory? That's a, that's a very good uh, point. Um, now, this is an example of how your adversity can help you through storms in the future mm-hmm. or, or get to the rainbow. So when I moved from Washington, D.C. in an all-black neighborhood, moving to Spotsylvania, Virginia in 1968 as an eighth grader, um, during the same time period as the movie Remember the Titans. Mm-hmm. So my experiences were very similar. My head coach was white, sister coach was black. So the struggles of being called names and people not wanting you to be there and all this other kind of stuff, I went through that. Right? Wow. So 
when I went through that, I developed a mindset of it's not what you call me, it's what I answer to. Mm-hmm. So some of it is is developing a thick skin, keeping your head down, getting focused. Uh, so I was the, I was the only one in my classes there. When I went to the Naval Academy, I was the only uh, African American in my company. Uh, but the thing is, if you're in any competitive environment. High, high probability you're going to be the only one that looks like you. Yeah. My kids, I have a 31-year-old son and a 28-year-old daughter. Okay, They were in high school. They were the only one in their class. You would think it would be different, but that's not the case. Uh, so I think that if you're in the military, you could be a corporate executive, you could be on TV, you could be any challenging position, it's a high probability that you're going to be the only one there that looks like you. Yeah. So then you got to develop the skills on how to deal with it. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. So coming out of the Naval Academy and and heading into the Navy, correct? You did a stint. Marine Corps. Marine Corps. So you did a stint as in the Marine Corps. Um, with what you can divulge and what you could share, what was that experience like? And, and before anything, thank you for your service. Oh, thank you. Um, another story about never quitting is, so at the Naval Academy, when you graduate, you have to determine what you're going to do. You could be a ship driver. You could be a pilot. You could be on a nuclear sub. So I decided to become a pilot in the Marine Corps. Mm-hmm. So the first day of ground school, the instructors tell you that the attrition rate is 66%, which means only one out of three are going to graduate wow. a year and a half or two years later, right? So when I heard that, I looked to the left, I looked to the right, and said, y'all not going to be here because I'm going to be here because Coach Sparks said quitters never win, quitters <laughs> never quit. So again, that was my mindset there. And I matriculated through, uh, got my wings, uh, and uh, I did two six-month Mediterranean cruises flying off of ships. I did one uh, three-month uh, Caribbean cruise flying off of ships. Uh, it was in the Mediterranean, so we're talking Spain, Italy, Portugal, Africa, uh, England, Turkey, all those. You know, we'd probably stay in port for maybe anywhere from four days to a week, but mm-hmm. I got to see a lot of the world and a lot of the – and I realized that when I came home to Camp Lejeune in North Carolina, I kissed the ground. I said, there is no place like America. Yeah. <laughs> we got our problems, but there's no place like America. That's wonderful. Yeah. Wonderful. <laughs> so when you come back home and heading into the corporate world, I'd love to get the the insight on how you apply the lessons you've learned through Naval Academy, through your service in the Marine Corps, applying that to a job. How how did you benefit in the corporate environment? And I'd actually also be interested to know how it might have crippled some of your your advancement in the in the corporate world. Yeah, it's uh, I one of the things I think that happens with uh, veterans is, and this doesn't make any difference whether you spend a year or forty years in the military. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're in an environment where people tell the truth, uh, people take care of their people, uh, people do what they say they're going to do. So you grow up in an environment where there's a brotherhood and a sisterhood, okay? So you, and when you leave that environment, it's different mm-hmm. because you're in an environment where people lie, cheat, and steal and throw you under the bus in a heartbeat. Mm-hmm. So it's a huge adjustment for, for a lot of military people just because of that because you could, you could enter a, a company and uh, you happen to run into a boss that doesn't value the same thing you value and end up leaving, go someplace else, Different boss, same criteria, values. So you can bounce around and think something's wrong with you. So for me, fortunately, wow. I uh, entered uh, Procter & Gamble in uh, Albany, Georgia. 
Now, when I got there in 1981, in 1971, the, co- the company founded a plant there, a paper plant. We made tissue, towels, and diapers. And the leadership said, we're going to hire the same multicultural mix as the community. So the multicultural mix of the community at that point in time was 40% African-American. When I got there in 81, 40% of the technicians were African-American, 20% of the managers were African-American, 20% of the managers were women. Mm-hmm. Unheard of in Southwest Georgia, one of the few places that Dr. King couldn't crack. Right? Yeah. So I go into that environment. There were a lot of uh, military people that had prime military service. I think 20% of the managers in all of Procter & Gamble then had some type of military experience. Wow. So that was a good transition. Uh, and then one of the things I learned at the Naval Academy, which which really uh, st- stuck with me and I think served me well, was uh, we called it the gouge. And the gouge was you had information, mm-hmm. okay? So um, the value of networking, utilizing your people, getting information from other people to help you, mm-hmm. you know? That's something that I think we as a people don't do a lot of. Yeah. But it is probably the most powerful thing that you can ever learn how to do is to build relationships, get information from others, uh, and not have to repeat, you know, stuff, stuff that you don't have to repeat. So... That was very valuable, the military skills, having the self-discipline to do what you need to do, uh, using the network that I had, uh, and uh, being able to process information mm-hmm. uh, and uh, lead people. Yeah. Uh, so all those skills uh, were very applicable in corporate America. Awesome. Awesome. Now, I kind of want to fast forward to the book and, and the company, Sharp Leadership, because now this is kind of... This is what you've been doing recently is, is, is training other leaders and pulling out the best potential. How does sharp leadership come about? How does the book itself come about? Because um, I'm interested to know how you can comprise your life experiences through this. And I do want to reference something that's in the book as well. In just okay. a bit. Yeah, I, um, I authored it about two years ago, mm-hmm. not quite two years ago. And uh, I had started doodling some things and... Eight years ago, I was diagnosed with stage four non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. So when I was going through my cancer journey, I started documenting some things too. So my daughter called me one day and said, Dad, are you serious about writing your book? I said, uh, kind of. She said, if you're committed to writing your book, she said, I found a book coach and I'll help you. Uh, I'll pay for the, uh, the money up through the manuscript mm-hmm. if you're serious about it. So with that, I got serious and uh, contacted my book coach and decided what I wanted to talk about in my life, kind of put some meat on the bones, talk to her periodically. Now, she's 32 years old. So if a 32-year-old can understand what I'm saying, mm-hmm. then that's good because I know what I'm trying to say. But a lot of times, people, other people don't know what you're trying to say. Yeah. So that was valuable. And uh, what I tried to put in the book was the best learning slash information that I could give about how to make it in this world. Mm-hmm. So it goes from zero to almost death's door, you know, and talks about, and throughout that, there's all kinds of trials and tribulations that occur. Yeah. Lost job, how to lose a job without losing your mind. You're going through stage four non-hydrogen in the form of cancer, having a uh, brain tumor at the age of 33, mm-hmm. um, uh, integrating the school, being called names. So, you know, it's, it's, uh, I've had a 10-year-old read it. I've had a 90-year-old Naval Academy graduate purchase 10 books, four for his sons, six for his grandsons. I had a pastor use it as a, a Bible study. Uh, 
it's very uh, easy to read. Yeah. Got a lot of nuggets in it. And as we mentioned right before the episode, I've I've read it a while back, and even just sitting down and talking to you, there are snippets from the book that are, that have stuck with me, and they continue to come back. So it does have a lasting impression. I want you to know that. Um, I do want to talk a little bit about your your bout with cancer, and and some of the lessons that that came about because you you talk about going from zero to death's door, and I feel as though for for a lot of us. Um, you know, we, we hope to never come to a point where we have to face our own mortality, but I think there's a lot to be learned in that. And I'm interested to know what that journey must have been like for you and what are some of the lessons that you still hold on to this to this day? Okay. Um, I've always prided myself in being healthy. I always exercise. Whenever I move someplace, I found a place to work out. Mm-hmm. I ate right. Uh, and uh, so... December 23rd, 2010, I go in for routine colonoscopy. Hmm. Doctor says, everything looks good. I go to uh, Florida to visit my wife's family, and my stomach starts hurting. I couldn't uh, lay on my stomach, and I couldn't lay on my back. So I came back home, and talked to the doctor. He gave me some pills. They didn't work. Came back a week later, gave me some more pills. They didn't work. Finally, he says, I'm going to uh, do an x-ray of your stomach. So he did an x-ray of my stomach, and about two or three days later, he calls me at work. He says, uh, Carl... I see enlarged lymph nodes in your stomach. I'm going to refer you to an oncologist. That's the first time I heard the C word. Yeah. I thought about three things. How long am I going to be here? Who am I going to spend my time with? And what am I going to do? Those mm. are the three things that went through my mind at that point in time. So um, I went in to see the specialist. They did a bunch of tests. They did biopsy. They did CAT scan, uh, PET scan, blood work, did all kinds of stuff. took about two weeks. Seems like it took two years mm-hmm. uh, and finally they diagnosed me with stage 4 non-Hodgkin's lymphoma which is a type of cancer that manifested manifested itself in my stomach by the time I was diagnosed I looked I was like looked like I was six months pregnant mm. face sunken in arms skinny legs skinny I looked like one of them starving kids from Africa and this was over the course of just a couple months yeah because it was very aggressive yeah very aggressive now my wife says that she saw signs a while back but I didn't see them but uh but when they um, when it was diagnosed, it was very aggressive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, I go in and talk to the um, the caseworker and my wife, and I go talk to the caseworker, and my wife is crying, and uh, the caseworker says, "Carl, you can beat this, but you got to have a positive attitude." Mm-hmm. She says, "You got to have a positive attitude." So again, that comes back to quitters never win and winners never quit. Yeah. So. Uh, I got had six rounds of chemotherapy during the time period that I was having my chemotherapy, several people poured into my life. So that's where relationships come in. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had a guy that I went to school with named Stan. Stan sent me a book called I Choose to Fight. In that book, it was about a guy named Tommy Harper who actually played football with me. He was a year behind me. And Tommy uh, came in and he played football. He's a tight end. He's a freshman. Made his way all the way up to the second string. Michigan, we were playing the Michigan team. And uh, he'd been having some problems with his stomach, throwing up and stuff like that. So the doctor said, you're not going to be able to travel, and we're going to have to do emergency surgery on you. So mm-hmm. they did uh, surgery on him. He had testicular cancer. They gave Tommy eight months to live, mm-hmm. uh, an 8% chance to live six months is what they gave Tommy. Uh, so Tommy's uh, documenting what he's going through. This is in 1973. Yeah. Chemotherapy was basically sticking a syringe in your arm. Radiation was going to a dark dungeon getting zapped. So that's what was going on in 73. So as I'm reading the book and he talks about what he's going through, 
I said, man, if Tommy can go through this in 1973, I can go through what I'm going through. So it gave me hope. Yeah. Tommy ended up living until he was 55 years old. Nice. Had two kids. They said, you're going to die in eight months, and you're not going to have any kids. Yeah. So that positive attitude. So my, my friend giving me that book encouraged me. There was a lady up the street uh, named Diana. Uh, and Diana was a four-year breast cancer survivor. She called me. She says, Carl, I want to talk to you about something that I did. She called it her chemo walk. She said, while I was going through chemotherapy, I walked. Every day I walked. Uh, so I hadn't walked for a while. I got up and walked for the first time with a 14-year-old in the neighborhood, walked for a block. Next day, two blocks, kept walking, walking every time uh, until uh, I went back. And uh, while I was walking, uh, when you spend a lot of time with yourself, either walking in the bed or something like that, um, it's an opportunity to have a bunch of negative thoughts in your head. Mm-hmm. So what I would do is I would recite one of three verses. I'd recite either the Lord's Prayer, 23rd Psalm, or the Prayer of Jabez, and I would just repeat them over and over and over until that negative stuff got out of my head. And I did that while I was walking. This today, uh, during that time period that I was walking, I can feel it. I can smell it. I can hear the birds, and it takes me back to that place because I spent a lot of time doing that. Yeah. So that was another person that came into my life. And then... Uh, my, both of my kids did Air Force Junior ROTC. The Colonel, Colonel Whitley, uh, was their instructor. We became friends. My wife and I were having breakfast one day. We look outside and we see two people, three people outside the outside of our lawn and uh, all this noise. My wife looks a little closer and it's Colonel Whitley and his wife, Ann, putting down straw and a guy on the lawn were cutting our grass. Hmm. So Colonel Whitley paid for my lawn to be cut for an entire year. Wow. Right. Now, here's the kicker. So when I was sick, not only was I sick, I was broke, mm-hmm. broke. I, so um, I said, OK, what am I going to do? So I humbled myself and I said, this this comes into humbling yourself and being able to reach out to people. So I reached out to the uh, president of the Naval Academy Association for my class, a guy named Kevin. Kevin reached out to a guy named Keith. Keith was in my company. Keith put together a GoFundMe program before mm-hmm. GoFundMe was in existence. Wow. My classmates and alumni financially supported me for an entire year. Wow. wow. The value of relationships, some of which I hadn't seen in 30 plus years. Yeah. Yeah. That That's absolutely amazing because um book I read recently called The Power of the Other talks about the importance of relationships and how uh, humbling yourself to ask for help when you need it and also having others to kind of lean on to at times is really um, the secret to one's success. So just just hearing how all those pieces came together to prop you up and, and get you through that storm in your life is, is something that's absolutely amazing to hear. Kind of coming up on the, the end, my last couple of questions usually focus on the storm and focus on the rainbows that you're currently chasing. Um, I do want to make sure I recommend the book to, to folks to get out there. I know it's available on Amazon. We'll get some of those details in a little bit. But kind of sitting here now, and you might have touched on it already, um, what, what's the biggest storm that, that sticks with you that you think moving forward you can, you can take on any other trial or tribulation or challenge? I, I think that the uh, cancer storm is probably the biggest mm-hmm. um, and I'm a firm believer that um, trials and tribulations can make you a better person. Because mm-hmm. um, there are things that I've done based on trials and tribulations that I would not never have done. Yeah. Right. So, uh, so let, I'm going to talk a little bit about um, integrating the school, being the only one at the Naval Academy, and being the only one in corporate America. Right. Mm-hmm. So, 
uh, I become the plant manager of a manufacturing plant in Kansas, hmm. right? Uh, a union plant. First time I'd ever worked in a union plant. So I trained for a year, and then uh, I get the reins. So I go into my office the first day, and I see this manila envelope on my desk. I said, oh, somebody's congratulating me for becoming yeah. a new plant manager. Right? I opened it up. There's three things in it. A uh, hangman's noose, uh, a picture of six white gentlemen saying, KKK new employees mm. and a note that said we don't want you here. Wow. So what I did was I called in the HR manager, I called in uh, the operations manager and two or three other people and I showed them what I had and I said uh, I don't want you to do anything with this. I just want you to know that I got it. Mm-hmm. And then I went out and took care of business. We had the best results in the company's history in that manufacturing plant. Wow. Now if I had not had that other stuff happen to me, I probably would have reacted differently. Mm-hmm. But what I knew based on experience was that person, whoever wrote it, didn't know me. They're insecure. They got issues. You know, hurt people hurt people. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's an example of going through stuff that helps you through other stuff. Kind of puts you in a position to kind of look at it with a different perspective. Exactly. And with that perspective, you were able to let the results and the person you are speak for yourself, exactly. not what they called you. Oh, I love that. So what are some of the, the rainbows and the sunshines that you're, you're chasing now? What are some of the current goals that you, you've set here for yourself? My, I'm a simple man with a simple plan. So my simplistically, that's the other thing that happens too is, so through my cancer journey, I, I tried to simplify life, right? Yeah. Three things, faith, family, and friends. That's what's important. So my role and goal now is to share the principles in the book mm-hmm. uh, and talk about the principles. So mm-hmm. we're talking about simplistically four things. We're talking about never quitting. We're talking about uh, taking care of your people. Mm-hmm. We're talking about building relationships. And we're talking about faith, family, and friends. So uh, I really do believe that it's a life-changing book. And uh, that's my vehicle to give back to the world. And I'm just trying to, to share those principles, monetize it, yeah, share the word. Absolutely. And I, I would love to see more people um, open up to your full story. And I know there's so much more to unpack that we could fit into this episode. So I think a lot of people are sitting on the ed- edges of their seat hoping for more. If you if they do want more, they could certainly get the book. What are other ways that people can reach out and, and connect with you and maybe find ways to get the get the book themselves? Yeah, my website is uh, www.carlsharpersonjr.com. Dot com. Okay. That's my website. Uh, I mean, you can just Google my name and I'll pop up. But if you go to the website, you can uh, order the book also and I'll sign the book and send it to you. Or you can get it on Amazon, Barnes and Nobles. Uh, and you can also, uh, I send out a motivational talk that's about two or three minutes once a month. You can sign up for that yeah. and get that also. Wonderful. Wonderful. And I guess before um, I sign off, what is the one message you hope that readers get from the book or what you what? some of the listeners right now to get from this podcast, what would you want to leave them with as they go about the rest of their day? I would say that uh, the other thing that I've learned through my journey and cancer journey in particular is uh, people like authenticity. Mm-hmm. And when you see somebody across the table, you really have no idea what they've gone through. Right. And uh, being able to be authentic, the more authentic you are, yeah, the more authentic other people will be. And if you're authentic and you're real and you take care of people and you do all this other kind of stuff, people will gravitate to you. Mm-hmm. Now, sometimes you won't know what you've done or how you've impacted people until you're gone. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. I've been in an organization, left the organization, and then people said, oh, wow, I'm really going to miss you. Mm-hmm. Really appreciate what you brought to the party. And you just never know. So you just got to be authentic, be real, help people. I love it. Carl Sharperson Jr., thank you so much for the time. Thank you for your time. would love to get more knowledge from you in the future, but for folks that made it to the end, uh, thank you for making it. And and some of the key points that I wrote down was, was, number one, don't quit. Uh, I love that. Don't quit and don't react. You want to, don't make, don't make any decisions rashly. You want to have a plan if you're in a position that you feel stuck in. And moving ahead, you mentioned the gouge, right? The value in building relationships with others, gathering information and using it because we can actually prevent ourselves from making the mistakes that others have made. And that can be a shortcut to our personal successes. So continue to build the relationships. And I love the three things you mentioned, um, the faith, the family, and the friends, definitely something to live by. And of course, the positive attitude, that's something I'm all about. And with No Rain, No Rainbows, we're all about the positivity. So thank you for the, the nuggets. And I think folks can go back, listen to this episode again to get more value. But we appreciate you. And as we always say at the end of the episode, everybody wants the sunshine, but they don't want the rain. But you can't get the pleasure without a little pain. Let's grow.